Hi everyone, Derek Parsons here, and welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where we attempt to make philosophy accessible for the people. This is a different introduction than we typically do, and there are reasons for this. On this episode, Andrew and I were so thrilled to have really someone that we look up to tremendously because we deal so much with his work. It's the translator Robin Waterfield, and his latest translation is that of Epictetus, his handbook, Discourses, and Fragments. It's a wonderful translation, and longtime listeners of the show will know that Andrew and I appreciate Stoic philosophy, of which Epictetus is considered one of the big three. But as Epictetus reminds us in the Enchiridion chapter 1, which is the handbook, he says, there are things which are within our control, and there are things that are outside of our control. And that's precisely what happened in this episode. We had some technical difficulties that we were unable to rectify in post-production, and unfortunately the first four minutes of this interview no longer exists. But what we do have is the remainder of the interview, which I think everyone, of course, will find insightful, not only about Epictetus, the person, but about the work of translating classical works, and a bit about Epictetus's Stoic take from one of the most authoritative persons to speak on it. One of the things that was missed in the first four minutes was his biography, so I'd like to read that right now. Robin Waterfield is an independent scholar specializing in ancient Greek philosophy and history. He was educated at the University of Manchester in Cambridge in the 1970s, and for a few years worked as a university lecturer, chiefly at St. Andrews University, before Mrs. Thatcher's government put paid to that career. Since then, he has largely been a writer, with a couple of brief forays into publishing. He has had more than 50 books published, ranging from children's fiction, through biography, and popular science, to history and philosophy. Many of these books are annotated translations of ancient Greek prose authors, i.e. predominantly philosophers and historians. But he has also written a number of well-received history books, focusing especially on the Hellenistic period of Greek history. His most recent book is a translation, with introduction and notes, of the complete works of Epictetus, which we'll be talking about today. And forthcoming next year from Oxford University Press is the first-ever book-length biography of Plato. Robin moved from England to the rural far south of Greece in 2005, and he now has Greek citizenship. So I'm curious on what drew you in the first place to uh, wanting to translate works on Stoicism. We've mentioned that you have translated uh, Marcus Aurelius's work too, but why Epictetus and, and why now? Um, nothing more than coincidence, Andrew, really. Basically, it, was, you know, it wasn't my doing. A few years ago, Basic Books approached me to do this uh, annotated translation of Marcus Aurelius's mm-hmm. Meditations. I really enjoyed that so much that I then asked my editor at the University of Chicago Press whether I could do Epictetus. I already had a relationship with the University of Chicago Press. They'd published a history book of mine, and they have, they've published seven volumes of the uh, complete works of Seneca the Younger, the most important predecessor of, Stoic predecessor of Epictetus. So um, I offered them the Epictetus as a, as a sister volume. It was no more than that. Were you familiar at all with Epictetus or Stoicism before then? I mean, more so than most people, because, you know, I've been studying ancient philosophy uh, one way or another for most of my life. But having said that, specializing more in the pre-Socratics and Socrates and Plato than in uh, post-Platonic stuff, or let alone in Roman period philosophy. 
But uh, so, yeah, in a sense, it was a bit of a crash course. And I think, although I shouldn't really say this, I think that my introduction, the introduction I wrote to Epictetus is a bit better than the introduction I wrote to Marcus Aurelius because I'd learned a bit more in the meantime. I don't know if you know uh, a philosopher called Charles Britton, some of his work, but he was one of the readers of my Epictetus and he was immensely helpful on getting me to uh, tighten up the introduction and things. So Robin Epictetus was a Stoic, and that's a particular school of philosophy. We've covered Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and Stoicism on the program before, uh, but could you give us a brief background on Stoicism for perhaps first-time listeners, or what does that philosophy concern itself with? It's what we would call a philosophy of life. Yes. Um, Nowadays, of course, Stoicism means the ability to endure hardship um, without complaining and without displaying emotion. And this is a true reflection of ancient Stoicism, but there was an awful lot more to it than that. But I should start by saying that Stoicism was not a matter of faith. Every one of their tenets was argued for, but I don't have time now to explain the arguments. So here's a kind of a bullet list of the main characteristics. The Stoics, as I think I've already mentioned, divided philosophy into three fields, physics, logic, and ethics. But I'll focus on ethics because that's Epictetus's focuses focus in the in the discourse. So the starting point of Stoic ethics is that the only thing that is good is virtue, and the only thing that is bad is vice or imperfection. Only a fully virtuous person is truly happy or fulfilled. Everything else, everything other than virtual vice, is what the Stoics call an indifferent. And properly treated, properly understood, indifference have nothing to contribute to our happiness or misery. However, people treat indifference, such as pleasure, wealth, health, and so on, as if they were important. And so they get attached to the material world and its values. Now, this is a very stark and extreme position, and it was somewhat diluted. The good life, the Stoics always said, is one that is lived in accordance with nature, But human nature involves, let's say, good health rather than ill health. You wouldn't say that ill health was what it is to be human. You would say normal, everyday good health was part of what it is to be human. So among the infinite class of indifference, some, such as good health and moderate wealth, were allowed to be what they called preferred indifference. This was a very controversial position in Stoicism because their their, uh, philosophical opponents would say, yeah, but you're simply introducing, you're simply calling some indifference good, which you're not supposed to do because only virtue is good. Right. Anyway, that's by the by. Virtue, the Stoic said, is knowledge. So the virtue of courage, for instance, is knowing what is truly fearful and what isn't. Mm-hmm. If virtue is knowledge, then behaving non-virtuously is a product of ignorance. And here we come to one of the Socratic paradoxes. Everyone thinks that everything they do is good for them, but we are simply often objectively mistaken about this. The Stoics say that the solution is to cultivate knowledge and rationality, which is to say that we cultivate the divine in us, since God is perfected reason. In the sphere of ethics, what makes an action appropriate is that is in accord with nature and admits of rational justification. Hence, self-regarding behavior is appropriate because it preserves us, which is in accord with nature. 
But other regarding behavior is also appropriate because in order to be good to yourself, you have to be good to others. Mm-hmm. So this is a true ethical position. Uh, I think that's probably enough as a sort of a thumbnail sketch of uh, stoic ethics. Yeah. And so Epictetus, um, as we've mentioned before, is one of many sources we have for stoicism uh, in a long line of stoic thinkers starting or beginning with Zeno, of course. But then as it sh- attention shifts towards the, the Roman world, we end up with some of the what's considered the, the big three, I suppose, of Seneca. Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius. Where, where does Epictetus yeah. fall in that particular timeline, and 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 where he falls is that important in any kind of way in terms of the future development of Stoicism? Yeah, very good question. So Epictetus lived and worked roughly four hundred years after the foundation of Stoicism by Zeno and Kittian, and you know it's very clear that this was a flourishing tradition for all those four hundred years. But the work of Zeno and all the early Stoics exists only in fragments. It's only when we get to the Stoics of the Roman imperial period, the big three, as you say, especially Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus, it's only then that we have complete texts. But it's a common working assumption, and one that I absolutely share, that though there may be changes of emphasis, the work of these Roman Stoics is a true reflection of the Stoic tradition. Epictetus introduced some new ways to teach Stoicism. Any, I find that any innovations that Epictetus introduced are usually ways for him to work better as a teacher. Mm-hmm. There are pedagogic reasons for him making these innovations. So he introduced new ways to teach Stoicism, but they weren't uh, fundamental changes of Stoic substance. Mm-hmm. So Socrates is mentioned 62 times in your translation of Epictetus. Can you tell us a bit more about Socrates' impact on Stoicism and how Epictetus used Socrates in his teachings? Yeah. Well, the first thing I think I should say is um, that there's a very small section of my bibliography at the, end of, at the end of the bibliography of Epictetus where I mention, I think, three works discussing Epictetus' reception of Socrates. But Socrates was of considerable importance for the Stoics. And even for Hellenistic philosophers in general, there's a very important article by Tony Long written some time ago now um, about the influence, the impact of Socrates on Hellenistic philosophy in general. So that should be read in, as, as well as the three articles I mentioned about Epictetus's use. I mean, the first thing is that the Stoics claimed to be in the lineage of Socrates. Socrates, as you know, had a large number of students, or quite a large number of students. One of them was called Antisthenes very important man. Unfortunately, his work survives only in fragments and testimonials. Socrates taught Antisthenes. Antisthenes taught Diogenes of Sinope, you know, that very famous, um, the first cynic who was uh, who famously lived in a, in a jar out on the street and, and uh, shunned possessions and the ways of this world altogether and lived as a tramp. So Antisthenes taught Diogenes, Diogenes taught somebody called Crates, and Crates taught Zeno Achitian, the founder of Stoicism. So the Stoics and the Cynics always claimed to be Socratics, to be within the lineage of Socrates. For some Stoics, Socrates may even have been the paradigm of a Stoic sage, a fully enlightened human being. It's not clear that Epictetus put him on that higher pedestal, because I think for Epictetus, as for most Stoics, they would say that 
there probably hasn't ever been a Stoic sage, or that you know uh, the existence of one is an extreme improbability. But for Epictetus, Socrates is at least the paradigmatic philosopher, and he refers to him as such dozens of times, 62 times, as you say. But even without referring to him, I mean, there are plenty of passages in the discourses where you can see Socratic influence where Socrates is not mentioned. I'm thinking in particular of Socratic method, which is, you know, fairly rapid-fire question and answer between uh, Socrates and, and an interlocutor. And Epictetus does that all the time. Epictetus is doing this interchange with his students or with one of his visitors, but more often with an imaginary interlocutor that he makes up uh, to act as a foil. And so he fires questions at this person and answers them himself. So Socratic method is, is very important. We've got two main sources for Socrates, as you know, Plato and Xenophon. Uh, but it was largely, it was more Xenophon's portrait that the Stoics took over rather than Plato's. Plato's Socrates was too ironic, too uh, given to insisting that he knew nothing to act as a Stoic sage or as an approximation to a Stoic sage. Mm -hmm. But the Stoics did take over central aspects of Socrates' thought, and especially the two main so-called Socratic paradoxes, that virtue is knowledge. We've already talked about that a little bit. But the other one is that no one deliberately does wrong. And this is a central paradox to both Socrates and Epictetus. Everything we do, we do thinking that it's the right thing for us to do, and that doing it will do us good. Even a criminal thinks that it's best for him to commit his crimes. But according to Socrates and the Stoics, the criminal is simply wrong. He's in fact harming himself by committing his crimes. So even someone who behaves non-virtuously thinks that what he's doing is good for himself, and it's just that he's objectively wrong because what he's doing won't fulfill him as a human being. That is, it won't make him happy. He's denying his potential because he has a mistaken belief or judgment. And since all actions thus depend on beliefs, it's critical to get one's belief set right. That is the moral that the Stoics drew from this second Socratic paradox. I'm curious, spending so much time translating uh, Epictetus and his works, that must have shed you a lot of insight onto Epictetus himself as a person and his way of teaching and, and his philosophy and stance on Stoicism too. So could you share some insights that you might have picked up on Epictetus, just that a translator or someone who spent so much time uh, with him would know? Um, I would say that I didn't really pick up on anything about Epictetus that isn't already widely known. Mm. There's, this, is, this is to do with the nature of translation. You know, you're, you're not approaching the text. I mean, you're working, you, you work from the bottom up first. So you're working sentence by sentence and paragraph by paragraph, well, first word by word. But I think, I think you don't, you don't uh, gain that much insight into the text as a translator because you simply are translating what's there. Mm. I haven't explained that very well. But what I, what I was most struck by, and what was a great deal of fun to translate, was his very abrasive style of teaching. <laughs> um, it reminded me very strongly, I don't know whether you know the work of, uh, of G.I. Gurdjieff, who was a spiritual teacher in the first half of the 20th century. Gurdjieff says things to his students, things like, 
you are all rather uninteresting examples of semi-animated automata. <laughs> and that is very, very like Epictetus. He calls his students slaves and derides them as useless wretches. They learn the theory, but they fail, they fail to put it into practice. He expresses his longing for just one student. Give me just one student with genuine potential. <laughs> and so on. And it was, so as I say, it was fun and challenging as a translator to try to capture his ironic and abrasive tone of voice but this is this is not a new insight at all into Epictetus sure. and his work sure yeah you know as dealing so deeply with the text i wonder do, do you get a, a sense of the person uh who you're translating and and part of that as you mentioned before of course it's, it's well known that Epictetus is quite sassy yeah. <laughs> which makes him very fun to read but that's kind of what i was wondering do, do, do you get a sense of the person um, oh, very you, much so yeah yeah now, every, 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 every author I translate, it takes a while. I would say uh, by the time I'm about 10% of the way through translating a work, I feel that I've got intimate with the author. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is a very, it is, it is intimacy. You get, mm -hmm. you get, uh, you get very close. Yeah. I'm thinking of, uh, obviously this isn't translation, but similar experience, I suppose, when I read Meditations, uh, for the first time, I read Meditations probably three times within a calendar year. And I read it each morning uh, as I was eating my breakfast. I read a couple of passages, right? Nice. And, and by the time I had done that, you know, three times, uh, I felt like Marcus Aurelius and I were friends or something. Um, and, and that's kind of what I you know, wondered, you know, surely, you know, through the translation process and working so closely, you, you must feel like you know them in some sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but who would I rather have to dinner, Epictetus right. or Marcus? <laughs> oh, I think I'd rather have Marcus. But I think uh, I'd rather have Marcus too. But, you know, if you're looking for a good time, uh, you might you might invite Epictetus. Yeah. <laughs> but talking about the translation method uh, too, I'm really curious about how that process kind of goes for you. I I know for talking with Harvey, he he told me a little bit about his. It's very strenuous, very tedious process. I'm, can you tell us a little bit about how that is for you? Well, I don't, I don't really have a method, I don't think. I don't have a process. Um, I just plunge straight in. I find out which is considered to be the best text of my author's work. I get hold of that text and I open it to page one. But what particularly marks the way I translate is that I'm constantly tweaking Mm. So, for instance, I work during the day, and then in the evening, I go back and I reread what I've written. Uh, so that's the, where the first level of tweaking, well, the first level of tweaking comes in, even as you're writing the first draft. I mean, there's no sentence in any published translation of mine, which is less than probably the fifth or sixth version of that sentence, and some even more. So I start tweaking then. And then, as I said just now, it takes quite a while before I feel I'm intimate enough with the author to kind of know his quirks and his uh, style and, and register and tone of voice. So once I gain that intimacy, then I go back over what I've already written and adapt it to that style or register. And then, you know, that goes on forever. I might be 80% of the way through a text before I discover what I consider to be a better way to translate a particular word or phrase or sentence or something. So then I go back over what I've already done and make that change. 
And this tweaking, honestly, goes on all the way up to publication. Mm -hmm. um, but you have to let go of the book at some point. So, <laughs> so, so it, the book does eventually get published. Yeah, I do want to get back to uh, to sources here in a minute, but I feel like this is a good place to drop this question in. Uh, speaking of word choices and going back and tweaking, there's two examples I want to to bring up specifically in, in terms of word choice and how you came to that particular word choice. One is uh, command center, and this is a term you also use in your meditations translation of Aurelius, which, which is for uh, the word logos or rational part of ourselves. How did you land on command center, which would seem like such a central term for Stoicism? Um, it is a central term for Stoicism, and it wasn't invented by Epictetus or Marcus. It was in use before. Sure. Um, it's not a translation of logos, of reason. Okay. It's, a it's a very literal translation. The Greek is to hegemonikon, literally the authoritative thing or the leading thing. Mm -hmm. Or we wouldn't say thing, we'd say part of oneself. And it does have slightly militaristic overtones. It refers to the soul in its guise as the faculty that processes impressions and initiates action. So like a military general weighing his information and then issuing orders to his troops. That's what the command center does. So it's, it's, it refers to the same aspect of oneself as logos, as reason, but it's, uh, it's putting it in a different way. Yeah, that's what I think of when I, when I think of command center is sort of a militaristic, you know, you think of uh, all the all the military chiefs together in a war room. Yeah. And uh, I don't think the translation was original to me either. I think mm, okay. I think others have I think others have used it. Okay. And the other one I wanted to bring up is is with word choices. Uh, again, back to Epictetus's sort of a uh, sassy nature with his students and everything. There's all kinds of uh, very fun <laughs> wordplay in there with him. Uh, the one I want to reference directly, even though technically it comes from the Enchiridion, which is Arian's uh, sort of compilation of Epictetus's thoughts. So, so I don't know if this is exactly a, a direct quote from Epictetus, but in the 22nd chapter, it says, anyone with philosophical aspirations must immediately accept the fact that he's going to meet with a lot of ridicule and mockery. Look who's back, they'll say. And now he's a philosopher all of a sudden. And how did he get so hoity-toity? Uh, and so hoity-toity gave me a good laugh. Epictetus always gives me a laugh, but that particular term. And I thought, okay, well, that's a choice on your part, I assume. I assume there's not a direct uh, you know, Greek translation of hoity-toity, but perhaps there is. So anyway, could you say a little bit about those types of uh, choices? I can't remember now what word I translated as hoity-toity, but I think, hang on. Yeah, but it occurs also in uh, in discourses. Okay, um, that particular bit of um, the handbook, uh, Arian is drawing on discourses two nine. Mm. So the word occurs there as well. Whichever word it was that I translated that way. No, I mean this was this was a lot of fun, as I said before. I mean trying to capture Epictetus's uh, tone of voice. The discourses, as I've said, didn't constitute the formal teaching of the school. No doubt in the mornings when Epictetus was teaching the theories of Stoic logic, physics, and ethics, no doubt his speech was more formal and technical, but the discourses were delivered live, and sometimes mm -hmm. even just as he was strolling around with his students, and the tone of voice is quite different, colloquial, mm -hmm. abrasive, impassioned. We don't have any evidence for this, but I strongly suspect that he spent at least some of his time in Rome as a street preacher. Mm. Um, the Stoics, particularly those Stoics who were attracted to cynicism, did do this. 
And I rather think that that uh, Epictetus did that, and I think we get still get traces of that in the discourses where he's using everyday language and where he's being very abrasive, where he's trying to get people to change their lives by insulting them. I mean, he says at certain points in the discourses, a student should leave the doctor's office in pain. Mm. You know, he really he he wants people to see uh, that there's something wrong with themselves or the way they fit into the world at the moment and so that they, they can start to change their lives. I think, yeah, I mean, as I say, it was fun for me I, to try to capture Epictetus' everyday language, but I think I was helped in this by the fact that I've translated an awful lot of Plato, who mm. uh, has the same mix. He doesn't, he's not as coarse as Epictetus, mm. uh, but he does have roughly the same mix of easy-flowing colloquial language, very conversational, the dialogues are, and high-flown philosophy. So it's, it's roughly the same kind of mixture as, as we find in Epictetus. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you learned so much about the historical kind of context that was ongoing during this time to kind of get you in the, the frame of mind to know that Epictetus might have been such as like a, a street preacher or in, in getting to know also the kind of philosophical side too is that come from uh your education in, in university or has that was that kind of part of the translation process for this work too yeah i mean what i do for every book i ever write whether it's whether it's an original book or whether it's a translation is that i read absolutely all the secondary material i can get my hands on and so that insight into epictetus undoubtedly came from my reading by far the most important book on Epictetus is by Tony Long, published in 2002. I can't remember the title off the top of my head, but, um, you know, maybe I picked it up from there or from something else. I mean, as, you know, as I write the introduction and in preparation to the, to doing the translation, I read dozens and dozens of books and articles, you know, so yeah, it would have come from there, I think. I'm curious too, how long when would you say that this whole translation process took for this book from when you reached out to Chicago Press to a date of publication? How, how long was that? It's, it's a long book. Um, it probably took me 18 months, I would say, uh, from start to finish. So a lot of research and then the translation and then the writing, the introduction. And that's 18 months of, of solid work. I mean, one of the great benefits of being self-employed, and I've been self-employed since 1982, more or less, a couple of brief periods in a publishing house, but they don't really count. They were very brief. Um, and one of the great advantages is, is that I can dedicate my time entirely to a single project. Okay, it gets interrupted if I've got proofs coming in of another book or you know something else, or even occasionally taking a holiday, who knows? But otherwise, and that's very critical for a translator because memory is is crucial it's not just you've got to remember not just how you've translated words in the past but you've got to remember how you're doing the style how you're doing the register of your author and all of that kind of thing so the fact that i'm i'm, I'm so lucky that i'm able to just work at it continuously so epictetus i would say i can't remember sometime between 18 months and two years Speaking of that time, you did mention in your introduction that, that you did translate this work during the COVID shutdown. And we're always in context. And when I, when I read that, I wondered if the shutdown or translating this under those COVID conditions 
impacted the translation in, in any sort of way, or perhaps even as you get a sense of an author, you probably, uh, your sense as a person uh, also might be impacted by the work itself and or by the conditions under which you're translating that work. Um, did, did that factor in, into your personal self in any sort of way, or did it impact the translation in any sort of way? No, I don't think so, Derek. I don't think so. I mean, I live in the far south of Greece, and yes, for most of the time when I was writing this book, we we were in lockdown. But my life didn't really change very much, since I generally just sit at my desk and work anyway mm-hmm. um, when I'm not looking after my olive trees. The only the only real nuisance was the was the long closure of libraries, but even that turned out to be not too bad because um, there's a fantastic classics list uh, run out of Liverpool University and. During COVID, I noticed that people were saying, has anybody got a PDF of such and such an article? And mm-hmm. this was happening a lot. So I simply jumped on that bandwagon. Um, <laughs> I asked for, I think, half a dozen items, uh, which I hadn't been able to access through friends or you know, other, all the online archives or anything like that. And I had them all within two days. So even the closure of libraries didn't really matter very much. Did I get any? No, I don't, th- I don't think it impacted my translation really uh, at all. Okay. I'm just a fanatic. I just sort of get down to it, you know. Well, I kind of wondered if that was the case. Yeah. yeah. Well, kind of along that same lines, uh, you, like you said, you've translated so many works and most of them are, are philosophically oriented in, in some way. So I imagine you might occasionally be impacted or have personal reflections related to, say, the content of the, of the translation that you're working with. Uh, if this is the case, have you had any personal reflections they might have had based on the works of Epictetus, or if not, you know, why is that the case? Or, or maybe even other reflections of, of other translations you've done. I wouldn't say that I came away with, with any personal reflections, though I defy anyone to read Epictetus and not suffer at least a twinge of regret that they don't <laughs> have what it takes to follow the austere Stoic path. <laughs> um, so, so why didn't I gain any personal takeaway? I think I want to go back to what I was saying a little earlier about how translators approach their texts. Mm-hmm. You're so caught up in the difficulty of translating each word and sentence correctly and appropriately that it's, it's hard to see the wood for the trees. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, let's take an example. As you probably know, there's an extensive worldwide movement now known as modern Stoicism. These are people who call themselves Stoics or would-be Stoics, and they read Epictetus and others for guidance as to how to improve their lives. But as a translator, I can't get caught up in a text like that. It can't be personal, because otherwise I'll be tempted from time to time not to translate what I see in the text, but what I want to see in the text. Mm-hmm. And when I started as a translator doing a lot of Plato, that really was a temptation. It's bound mm-hmm. to be a temptation if you're a thoughtful person translating philosophers. But, you know, I had to learn to. Uh, to just translate what I see, not not what I want to be there. So I just got on with translating. Of course, I have to think about the content and make sure it's as coherent in my version as in the original. But I'm still not thinking about it personally. I'm not taking it taking it in personally. Yeah, I wondered if that would be the case. I find that really interesting. Um, I assume like the task is just to do the translation, as you pointed out, right? Yeah. Because sure, I mean, if I was translating Plato, I would get caught up in the world of forms as well. It's so it's so beautiful. But yeah, you need to produce a faithful translation, of course. So, how did Epictetus come to us eighteen hundred years later, 
Uh, you mentioned Arian. Can you talk a little bit about uh, who he was and his role in Epictetus coming down to us too? We're actually very blessed with Epictetus. He was he was always popular uh, right from the start. So there are a very good number of manuscripts, and we can be fairly confident that the texts of his work that we use today are close to what he originally wrote, or rather what Arian originally transcribed. But having said that, I've never translated a work without deviating at at least some points from the authoritative text. I might prefer the reading of one group of manuscripts over another, or I might prefer the suggested reading of some past scholar, or even come up with a new reading of my own. Now, Arian, Lucius Flavius Arianus, to give him his full name, was one of Epictetus' students. We can pinpoint the time he was at Epictetus' school to roughly 108 CE. He later became a well-known author in his own right. Um, for instance, his account of Alexander the Great's Eastern Expedition is considered to be the best, even though he was writing hundreds of years after Alexander. Now, somehow, he preserved all these discourses. He or his slave, as I mentioned before, must have known stenography, we know, that, we know that stenography existed in the Roman world. Cicero mentions it in the first century BC. So he or his slave must have known stenography. And it's possible that some of Epictetus's talks may already have been transcribed by others. So there might have been at least some stock of the discourses for Arian to draw on. But it's still an astonishing feat to recover what originally would have been about a quarter of a million words of extempore and rapidly delivered lectures. In fact, it's such a remarkable feat that many scholars feel there may be more Aryan in the discourses than we can detect. <laughs> well, that may be true, but uh, we can't detect the joins, and so it makes no difference to me as a translator. We've talked a little bit about the predecessors of, of Epictetus with you know, some maybe Hellenistic influences in, in Zeno. In one of the things that these Stoics place an emphasis on is, is the four cardinal virtues, courage, wisdom, justice, and temperance. You mentioned in your introduction that Epictetus places less emphasis on the virtues and more on roles and acting in accord with nature. Can you talk a little bit more about this shift? Yeah. The talk of roles does seem to be original to Epictetus. We don't, we don't find it elsewhere. And uh, we don't even find it in Marcus Aurelius, who was very heavily influenced by Epictetus. And uh, as I said before, I think all the uh, tweaks or innovations that Epictetus introduced to Stoicism are to do with his being a teacher. So his students were almost entirely upper-class Romans who uh, had a very strong sense of their place in Roman society. And Epictetus is riffing off that. He's saying, look, since you can't change the family or society you were born into, then it was one of those many things, one of those many indifference that was given to you by the benevolent God. So you have to accept the roles you've been given as a son or a daughter, as a father or a mother, as a member of this society rather than that. And in practice, this often means conforming to society's norms. In ancient Rome, for example, you were expected to be deferential to your father. So being a good person, being pr practicing virtue as a son, meant playing that role properly, i.e. being deferential to your father. Even, Epictetus says, even if you know that your father is a bad man, 
You can't concern yourself with his badness. That's his problem, not yours. Your concern is to be as good a person as you can, yourself, to play your roles properly. So you can see how talk of roles kind of substitutes for talk of virtue. He, he's not sort of being explicit. He's just saying, you've got to be a good person within your roles, rather than talking about the four cardinal virtues or anything like that. Well, you mentioning the word roles just immediately made me think of Confucius and his emphasis on on roles in society versus, say, like Lao Tzu or, or Taoism, probably focuses a little more on virtues. I don't know, just a random... Yeah, no, I'd like to follow that up at some point. Yeah. yeah, I know very little about Confucius, but what you said right, rings a bell, yeah. Well, another difference that you note uh, with Epictetus and perhaps some of his predecessors like Masonius Rufus is his emphasis on indifference. And we've discussed dif- indifference a little bit already, but th- does Epictetus's notion uh, or emphasis on impressions, does it carry greater emphasis as opposed to other Stoic sources? And, and is that important to the evolution or development of Stoicism? Um, I, I don't think Epictetus emphasizes indifference more than other Stoics. Um, they're prominent in Marcus, for instance, and in Seneca. But one interesting difference is that Seneca does, but Epictetus followed by Marcus doesn't, talk of preferred and dispreferred indifference. Mm-hmm. I've already mentioned this term, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll go on, even at the risk of some repetition. Strictly, as Epictetus puts it at 2.9.15, things are either good, bad, or indifferent. The virtues and everything in which the virtues play a part are good, and their opposites are bad. Indifference are things like wealth, health, and reputation. So, strictly, everything other than virtue and vice are indifference and they have no contribution to make to our happiness or misery. Nevertheless, because the Stoics always claimed that a good life was one that was lived in accordance with nature, from that perspective, many indifference can be rated on a scale of value, even if they can't be rated as good or bad. Their value depends on whether they're in accord with nature and aid an aspirant's progress toward virtue. And so consideration of the value of things allows us to draw distinctions within the infinite class of indifference, such that some of them are preferred indifference and others are dispreferred. For example, health is neither good nor bad, since it is neither virtue nor vice. We can be happy, fulfilled human beings, whether we're healthy or unhealthy. But health is still to be preferred to sickness because it is natural to us as human beings. Or in other words, as Epictetus would put it, It's the bodily condition that God established for human beings. Since happiness depends on our being in harmony with nature in all respects, and since health is our natural condition, it is a preferred indifferent. It's not something we should want. It's not something we should seek after, but it's something we can select. A quite subtle difference. By the same token, moderate wealth and some degree of status in society are also preferred indifference not surprisingly, since they reflect our nature as human beings. Stoic preferred indifference coincide to a considerable degree with the ordinary values of society. So this is standard Stoic doctrine and central doctrine too, but it never occurs explicitly in either Epictetus or Marcus. Epictetus implies the distinction, mm-hmm. uh, 1.1.26-27, where he takes someone to task for choosing a worse indifferent, death, over a less bad one, exile. So he's making a a distinction of preference between exile and death. And Discourse 1-2 also operates with the same same distinction between worse and better indifference. But that's about it. Mm -hmm. 
He doesn't explicitly make the distinction, nor does he enter into the considerable controversy that the distinction aroused, which I've already mentioned. Mm -hmm. The critics of Stoicism said that the doctrine of preferred indifference was just a sly way of saying that they were good for us, and so importing the notion of goodness by a back door. Something you mentioned earlier is this, uh, I think you said the worldwide Stoic movement that seems popular, Stoicism seems very popular nowadays, especially among kind of self-help authors. But it, nevertheless, it seems like it's captivating a lot of people right now, or, or certain ideas in Stoicism. Can you talk about why you might think that Stoicism has had this effect on not only us, but past leaders and, and past cultures? Bill Clinton was very taken with Marcus Aurelius. There was an article, and I think in the New York Times Review of Books or something years and years ago, I'm only vaguely remembering. I think I footnoted it in the Marcus translation. But I mean, Andrew, I don't really have any special insight into this because I'm not a practicing Stoic. So I can't really say what it is that attracts people about it. I can guess and I will go on to guess. Uh, nor am I particularly widely read in modern Stoicism. But I think what's important to start by saying is, let's go back to that triad. The Stoics taught ethics, physics, and logic. But for modern Stoics, as far as I know, they hardly think about the physics and the logic. It's the yeah. ethics they're interested in because they're interested in improving their lives and becoming better people. And so I imagine that the attraction is because it offers clear guidelines to living. It's very, you know, that the axioms, the starting points are very simple. Some things are up to us and some are not. Things are either good, bad, or indifferent. You know, that's, that's a very clear and easy foundation to start working with. Of course, the practices that stem from these axioms are difficult to apply and difficult to apply consistently as well. But I think what's initially attractive might be a sense of, hey, I can work with that. It'll help me to do something about my sense that at the moment, not everything is as it should be in my life. So I'm guessing that that might be it. Yeah, I agree with your notion on the metaphysics um, and the, and the new, new modern Stoic movement. And I think one of the big topics that they debate is as to whether or not, you know, the, the notion of providence uh, from, from, a, from a deity of some type, um, whether or not an atheist can be, you know, a Stoic. And they, they kick that around. But yeah, I think you're right. No, I think of I think of like you know maybe Ryan Holiday or, um, yeah. or even or even Massimo Piglucci who who's published a, a great deal in the last couple of of years. And you know I, I've heard other people kind of nod that COVID was such a, a situation that was out of our control um, that the writings of Stoicism or Stoics really helped um, people mentally with grappling with that particular situation. But yeah, there's certainly been an uptick in, uh, in the publishing world as far as Stoicism goes. And it's just intriguing. It's true. And of course, uh, having translated Marcus and now Epictetus, I hope to be uh, riding on his coattails. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> in our introduction that we read today about you, uh, we mentioned that you're working on a comprehensive biography of Plato. Plato is one of my favorite philosophers to read, and he has such a unique way of writing. I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit more, uh, kind of foreshadow this future project. Uh, well, it's no longer a future project uh, because it's in the process of uh, production at Oxford University Press and due to be published next May. Awesome. Astonishingly, astonishingly, it's the first ever book-length biography of Plato. 
uh, or perhaps not astonishingly, because the evidence is thin and often controversial. So it's the kind of biography where, you know, we don't know specifically what kind of edu- what education Plato went through as a as a teenager, but we know what education was like in Athens at the time. So you pad out the thin information by, you know, talking about uh, what you know about Athenian society in general and things like that. But I mean, there are there are huge areas of controversy in the uh, in the evidence. The most important being, what is one to make of? There are a lot of letters have come down to us under Plato's name, but there are thirteen which have some right to be considered to be taken more seriously, since they were probably already uh, part of the corpus of Platonic works by the end of the third century BC, and in fact, relatively recently, a papyrus fragment of one of the letters, letter thirteen, has turned up dating from the 3rd century BC. So that gives at least that letter, uh, which I happen to think inauthentic, but at least you know many people think letter 13 is, uh, is authentic. But there are a number of scholars who think that all the letters are spurious, later forgeries. Forgery was a very big thing in the ancient world. You know, once libraries started up, especially you know, the libraries at uh, Alexandria and elsewhere, uh, forgers could make a lot of money by saying, hey, I've come across a letter by a really important person. You want this in your library, don't you? So uh, many, as I say, many scholars think that all the letters are later forgeries, but they are our richest source of biographical information, particularly to do with Plato's visits to Syracuse, particularly when it was ruled by Dionysius II, and his intervention there to try to turn Dionysius into a uh, more of a constitutional monarch rather than an absolute monarch. The word for an absolute monarch in uh, ancient Greek was tyrant. Mm-hmm. Um, but the letters, uh, so I don't know what else to say. I trace events of Plato's life from birth to death insofar as we know them, where we don't have details, as I say, I pad them out. There is a, I mean, since this a is a biography of a philosopher. The book's also meant to double up as an introductory account of his philosophy, but very introductory. You know, I don't go into any controversies. I don't give any uh, in-depth analyses of any particular dialogues, let alone stretches of dialogue. I've dwelt more on his political ideas than, say, his metaphysics, because politics can tell us more about a person's character, which is the subject of a biography than uh, more abstract branches of philosophy. But there, there is a surprising lot to say, uh, a surprising lot of ways to gain insights into his uh, life and character. Well, that sounds fascinating. I can't wait to to dig into that. Just a couple episodes ago, Andrew and I were doing a, a Who Was Plato kind of episode. And yeah, you know that, that issue of, of biographical or the lack of biographical information you know, leads to yeah. a lot of uh, speculation. And, and I'm sure, you know, you mentioned those, those letters. Uh, I'm sure authenticating those letters, uh, just like others try to authenticate artwork uh, as opposed to, you know, forgeries. It must be incredibly difficult. I'm sure that the thinking behind in terms of how you justify uh, one of those letters as being authentic is quite a task. It's, it's I mean, I try to be objective about it. There's... Um, 
because we don't know the order that Plato wrote his dialogues in, mm-hmm. um, there's been a great deal of stylometric work to try to determine or, or try to get close to that order. I don't think it can give us the order of specific dialogues, but it does give us, it can give us chunks of dialogues, mm-hmm. early, early, middle, late, basically. And three of the letters, two, three, and seven, are stylometrically very similar to works written by dialogues written by Plato at about the same time those letters were supposed to have been written. So, as I say, that's that's about as objective as one can get. Mm-hmm. So I think so. I think I, for that reason, I and there are other lesser reasons, but that's the main reason why I accept those three letters as genuine and sure. base my base at least some of my biography on those. Well, Robin, our final question we always ask of, of all of our guests, and, and the answer, I suppose, from Epictetus is that we are rational, but more along the existential lines of just existence. What does it mean to be human? Ha ha, what a question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, in my uh, Kurt Vonnegut moods, <laughs> which I suffer from, I might say that to be human is to be born into a life of suffering and then to die into oblivion. <laughs> But I have more positive moods as well. And so I might say that human beings appear to have a natural urge to improve themselves. Most people would understand that in material terms. They want to get on in the world, make money, acquire status, and so on. But the Stoics, as we now know, would say that all these are matters of indifference, and that what really matters is improving oneself internally and becoming, as you said, a rational human being. And here I think Epictetus and other Stoics can point the way. Thank you so much, Robin, for agreeing to come on and having this great conversation with us about Epictetus, Stoicism, and uh, your account on what it means to be human, too. We, we really enjoyed <laughs> it. Please make sure to check out Robin's newest translation and edition, Epictetus, the Complete Works, Handbooks, Discourses, and Fragments. It's really fun to read. It's, I think it captures... Uh, Epictetus's sassiness is, uh, Mr. Parsons said earlier, better than anything I've read. So I really enjoyed it. And I, I know everyone will too. Yeah. Thank you, Robin. We really appreciate your time and insights. Well, thank you both very, very much. I, uh, I enjoyed myself. Thank you so much again to Robin Waterfield for coming on the podcast. A lot of fun, very insightful and very accessible too. Um, I learned a lot and I'm super excited for everyone to check this book out too and to to really gain gain a lot from it. Uh, what a fantastic guy. It was really fun talking with him. Really personable and, and really, really generous to us. So yeah, I guess that's it for our, for our episode. So what are the things we usually say, Andrew? Yeah, who do we got to thank? Got to thank we, Kevin McLeod for the use of his really groovy music. That's playing right now that's right um it's 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 really groovy so so check that out yeah check us out on our social medias and ways that you can contact us so we're on twitter we're on instagram and you can also email us at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com with any questions or episode ideas or questions about philosophy in general i think that's it so that's it remember when your life is the need of some philosophy the door is always open Thanks. Sure is. See you.